This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who is subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those of you who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. And don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to our new website, where you will get a regularly updated hub of episodes, blog posts, and links to various podcasting services, and our Patreon page. Also, to those of you who are helping in any way to help this show become ad-free by becoming listener supporters on Anchor and Patreon, I simply cannot accurately express my appreciation to you. This show started as a way of keeping myself accountable for learning, and I am humbled and overjoyed to know others find it as valuable as I do. And finally, I want to thank everyone for your patience these last two episodes as I've worked out the bugs with the audio. I think I fixed it going forward, but hey, I'm still learning new things regarding the nuts and bolts of podcasting, so there's the learning curve of that to consider too, but I think I'm getting there. All right, now for what you're all here for. This is our 11th episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 45, is entitled... The Bastard versus the Hammer. I hope you enjoy the show. Geoffrey Martel was the Count of Anjou, a county within the French kingdom just south of Normandy. Martel was the son of a warlord named Falknera, a man who was despised among his contemporaries and who built castles around Anjou to the extent that Anjou was hardly a place to be messed with. We focused heavily on the Duchy of Normandy, mainly due to its curious creation, its connections with Scandinavian history, and its strong connections with England, with the marriage of King Ethelred II and Emma of Normandy. But really, come on, who are we kidding? We've focused on Normandy so heavily because it would be the jumping-off point for a man who would redirect the course of history. But France... France was an incredibly dynamic place in the 11th century, full of an ever-growing cast of characters, all vying for supremacy over the other leaders within the kingdom. Heck, even outside of the kingdom. Even the king of France himself was experiencing a diminishing authority during the 11th century, as men who had been knighted before all jockeyed for a better position on the game board of France. My point here is that just because we focused mainly on Normandy so much already, doesn't mean the rest of France was some quiet pushover of a kingdom. Hardly. And Count Geoffrey Martel of Anjou, the son of Falknera, was, in the 1050s, making serious advances in the cause of the people of Anjou. Well, here's your first clue, actually. Martel. Martel translates to the hammer. So... There's that. But Duke William wasn't the only bully patrolling the block, see. William of Poitiers referred to Geoffrey Martel as, quote-unquote, a man of overweening pride. But the Count was also a man very well-versed in the art of warfare and strategy. In short, he wasn't just a big ego. Count Jeff... 
excuse me, Count Jeffrey could back it up too. By the 1040s, while William was still coming of age and securing his authority in Normandy just to the south, the heir to the county of Anjou had just taken over his father's title and was already carrying out horrible, horrible raids and making devastating deals with his neighbors. Early victims of Jeffrey's were the Count of Poitou and the Count of Blois-Chartres, who were both forced to give up territory to their young counterpart. And while William faced his biggest challenge as Duke, so far at least, at the Battle of Valais Dune near Caen in 1047, it was Geoffrey Martel who seized the opportunity to invade the county of Maine, which is a tiny principality that separated Normandy from Anjou. And when I say the county of Maine, it's literally spelled and sounds just like the U.S. state of Maine, just for clarification. The county of Maine. And when Count Geoffrey imprisoned Maine's bishop at Le Mans, well, the rest of France called in reinforcements. Unfortunately, the French king was currently assisting young William in Caen. This is 1047, but two years later, the king got around to assembling a crew to, you know, once and for all, <laughs> I say that in quotations, uh, stand up to Geoffrey Martel. This crew included young Duke William, who seemed to have had his favors cashed in by the king, who again was instrumental in William's recent victory. So William and Geoffrey would meet for the first time on this battlefield. As Mark Morris put it in his book, The Norman Conquest, he says, quote, From March 1051, the expansion of Anjou menaced Normandy directly. End quote. See, that same year saw the Count of Maine die, and his peasantry welcome Geoffrey Martel. But Geoffrey, as his name implies, was, well, a hammer. And when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Alençon, the village Alençon, was Geoffrey's next nail. But the problem was that the town of Alençon was just outside the northern boundary of Maine, in Normandy. And many noblemen in the area had properties existing in both Maine and Normandy, so as Morris writes, quote, like border families everywhere, they tended to wear their loyalties lightly as a result, end quote. The people even those who owned land inside Normandy, chose Geoffrey as their lord. Young William, as you can imagine, was not pleased. And we soon see how William's skin had thickened, or, or actually not thickened, over his many long years, 16 years now to be exact, since he was first set to flight for his, for his very life when his father, Duke Robert le Magnifique, had died on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. William quickly assembled his knights and soldiers, and as William of Jumiege wrote, he rode through the night across Normandy toward Alençon. A fort of high walls had been hastily erected already, and it was manned by soldiers from the area surrounding Alençon, presumably by folks who had just several days earlier called William their duke. As William approached, every year of his long and tumultuous reign, came rushing back to him, as he heard jeers and insults cast his way. And they weren't just jeers and insults toward he and his men. No, these were very personalized insults, insults that he had grown up hearing 
and assumed he'd moved past a few years earlier when he won at Valles Dunes and truly became the overlord of Normandy in more than just name. To quote Morris's account here, he writes, quote, Orderic Vitalis, adding to Jumiege's account, explains that with men inside the fortress beat animal skins and shouted pelterer at William, the joke apparently being that his mother's family, as undertakers, had also worked with skins. Suffice to say, the Duke was unamused. In short order, the fort was attacked and its defenders captured. Then, under the eyes of all the inhabitants of Alençon, William ordered his mockers maimed. Thirty-two men, says Orderic Vitalis, had their hands and feet cut off. End quote. On the one hand, one could compare this to the epic fit thrown by young Canute when he was outvoted by the English Witton after Swain Fortbeard's untimely death, when Ethelred II was allowed back in the kingdom in 1014. If you remember, Canute did kind of did the same, didn't he? Only he included ears and noses in the hatchet job and left them at the port of Sandwich before heading back to Denmark and licking his wounds. But on the other hand, unlike Canute, this was, as Morris referred to it, quote-unquote, a calculated act of brutality that would have lasting impacts. And I want to point out that word calculated. This was not an uncommon tactic, before or since. The biggest example of creating a reputation that precedes the person that comes to my that comes to my mind is the Mongols' use of terror as a pretense for surrender prior to them even arriving. But I do get a little ahead of myself there, sorry. <laughs> as for William, there in Normandy in the year 1051, this cruel act of barbarity would help cement his reputation for the next couple decades. His chroniclers would make him out a hero, of course. William of Poitiers wrote, quote, the victor returned home and made his whole native land famous by his recent glory and triumph, at the same time inspiring great love and terror everywhere. End quote. William Poitiers, ever the cheerleader. Now this is the point at which it is said by the D Chronicle of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles that William made his way to England to be, the word used is, received by King Edward. Now, the key word here, again, is received. This word in the 11th century specifically, when used in the context of the nobility, purposely meant to explain that one nobleman, and hear me on this, one nobleman accepted the loyalty of another. So, and we're thinking a little ahead here to 1066, which you all know is coming soon. So, if King Edward received Duke William, then it wasn't that King Edward swore allegiance to some French duke. In fact, it was the other way around. Duke William would have sworn allegiance to the French king. And why would a king hand over his loyalty, or even his entire kingdom for that matter, to the vassal of a foreign king? Really? And since Chronicle D is the only source that mentions William's visit to England, and even then it's to focus on the death of his great-aunt Emma, I just don't buy it that Edward swore his kingdom to William, not with other things that I'm going to tell you in the next few episodes as well. 
With the rabid fandom William had among the clergy in Normandy, why wouldn't they have reported this, even mentioned it in passing? I mean, that's a, this is a momentous moment, right? I mean, their duke was set to become king of a foreign kingdom. Kind of a big deal, right? Yet all we hear from Normandy is crickets. Now, after a brief spell and the supposed return of William from England, a 1052 charter appears in the records with the names of both King Henry I and, get this, Count Geoffrey of Anjou. And by August of that year, while Godwin was invading his own kingdom, if you remember, and returning to his grand position at the top of the English hierarchy, William heard of this charter. King Henry and Geoffrey Martel had plenty to be fearful of with regards to William. I mean, this young duke survived an unimaginably harrowing childhood full of potential usurpations and assassinations attempts, um, even the dehumanization that was used against him that we still see today. Tales of his bloodlust at uh, Valas Dunes was by then widely known. His brutal tactics deployed at Alençon were quickly becoming scary stories told by the French people as warnings about crossing this duke. He'd just married into a stout noble family ruling Flanders, and he did this while thumbing his nose up in a very public humiliation at the Pope himself. Yes, King Henry and Geoffrey Martel had plenty to be fearful of with regards to William indeed. So Henry and Geoffrey were planning something in Orléans, where the charter took place, which Orléans is a small city at the time just south of the Norman capital of Rouen. When he heard of Geoffrey's departure, William wasted no time writing to his king in Orléans and attempting to ascertain even clues as to what the two men discussed. Duke William's biggest groupie, William of Jumièges, blamed the king's refusal to cooperate as a sign of what he called, quote-unquote, evil men in his midst, that is, Geoffrey Martel. It reminds me a lot of the way the chroniclers of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was talking about that snake, Edric Strayona, slithering his way into King Ethelred II's court, if you remember, way back in the podcast. King Henry I, however, poured money into one of Duke William's own noblemen, his uncle, actually, another William, Count William of Ark. Now, Ark was a county within the Duchy of Normandy, making this a civil war of sorts, or, or maybe, if you squint just so, a coup? You know, recently, for reasons not exactly clear, this Count William of Ark had a castle of his seized by forces loyal to Duke William. But when Count William that is, Count William, rushed this castle and took it back as his own, well, this was a direct affront to the will of his duke, and thus an act of rebellion. See how that works. This had a desired effect for King Henry. Geoffrey Martel and this Count William of Arc. Most of northwestern Normandy started swaying away from their loyalty toward their duke. If Duke William didn't step in swiftly and decisively, then he may indeed lose this part of the duchy and then some, even his own life, if it came to that, which it probably would. So Duke William did just that. He, he rallied his local, or excuse me, his loyal knights and soldiers, which were still plenty, and he rode to this castle near Ark. 
He harassed the countryside as he neared it, but found his uncle's forces had pretty much beat him to it. This was the nature of siege warfare in the medieval era. Now, as always, the innocent peasants were the victims here. Morris tells us that the ramparts at Ark, quote-unquote, was probably the mightiest castle in all of Normandy. And that's saying something. You know, the, the French leaders, as we've mentioned time and time again, and as you will see, certainly played into the overall Norman conquest of England, these French knights were masterful, masterful castle builders. So hang tight to that idea. And as Morris says, this, this, these ramparts outside of Ark, well, they were probably the mightiest castle of them all in Normandy. So William would find no easy task here. This wasn't Alençon. This was indeed Ark. This was a new, challenging test for the successful young embattled Duke, so he decided to starve him out. Duke William ordered a siege castle built nearby, and they would prevent anyone coming in and out of Ark to gather supplies or trade for resources. Ark was essentially shut down. It was closed off. Who could hold out for longer was the question with any siege. This siege began in early 1053, around the time of Godwin's death back in England, and when his son Harold rose to ultimate power there. By the fall of 1053, Ark was struggling but still holding out. King Henry I must have been watching with bated breath how this little rebellion was going. And he most likely wasn't getting more and more, uh, he was most likely getting more and more nervous by the week. This, this young duke was a force of nature, he was finding. Finally, though, it was time to harass the young man in an effort to redirect the Duke's attentions elsewhere and allow Count William, within the besieged castle, to do something. Well, the king led his own men into battle by fanning his forces out upon approach to Duke William's siege castle. Duke William heard of the impending attack and dispatched his cavalry to meet the king's men head-on. It was set on one distant flank. The Duke's knights trapped the king's men and slaughtered every last one of them. The other flanks were easily turned back at that point. This was an unmitigated disaster for King Henry I. Once again, at the hands of his now 25-year-old duke, who was able to reflect his king's surprise invasion, all the while holding his uncle's men under the siege he'd created months before. However, Records indicate that French reinforcements and supplies did happen to sneak into the fortress at some point, but it still took no time at all for the whole siege to eventually collapse under the weight of Count William's disloyalty. Duke William, once again, showed France who was top dog. So just as William retook his castle at Ark, deposed his uncle, and sent him packing, the long year of 1053 came to a close, only to open up to 1054, when the news of two major events eventually reached Normandy's ears. The Pope had been soundly defeated at Civitate at the leadership of a son of Normandy, Humphrey de Hauteville. And soon after the end of winter or spring in 1054 came the news of that Pope's untimely death. But William could hardly celebrate all of this because word came back that King Henry was a bit perturbed by his humiliation outside of Ark and was planning a part two. Geoffrey Martel, however, was now the king's right-hand man, again. 
It was clear that these two men weren't just plotting anymore. They were acting. But they brought other French noblemen and their, and their bannermen with them. This wasn't a King of France and County of Anjou versus Normandy thing. This was most of the Kingdom of France versus Normandy thing. So Duke William VII of Aquitaine, Count Theobald I of Blois, the County of Maine, of which Count Geoffrey already had mostly under his control, Count Reginald of Clermont, Count Ralph of Montdidier, and Count Guy I of Ponthieu, among others, rode at their king's side in one of two prongs of the attack. This wasn't just a territorial dispute or, or an internal dispute or a dispute between egos. This had become an existential threat to Duke William and his duchy. After a century and a half, it seems the French were fed up, finally, with these Normans altogether. This would be a challenge for Duke William, but he was young, and of course we know about the young, they were, or that he was also feeling pretty indestructible. What could go wrong, right? King Henry sent his brother Odo to invade Normandy from the northeast first, drawing the Duke's forces in that direction. The king himself would lead a force from the, from the direction of Paris, to the southeast. William knew Odo's invasionary force was only a half-hearted attempt. As Morris states, quote, medieval commanders, contrary to popular belief, rarely went in search of battle. Only when their very survival was at stake, as Williams had been in 1047, would they take such a colossal risk. Normally, as Williams' more usual resort to siegecraft suggests, they relied on attrition, end quote. Morris is right in that medieval warfare was a far cry from what we see depicted on our screens today. The scarcest resource for any army is its human resources, and once it's spent, it's spent. But the brutality throughout the countryside, such as Robert Guiscard's in Calabria, for instance, was pretty spot on with what we think of when we imagine times like the 11th century. Other resources, besides those of the human variety, could be collected and stolen, often at great cost for the peasantry nearby. The practice of attacking non-combatants, as Morris says, quote-unquote, was an integral part of warfare, which is unthinkable today due to our adherence to the Geneva Conventions and the subsequent rules of engagement the majority of the world follows today. But again, things were different then as attacking the general civilian population would expose the lack of security a lord truly had, thus undermining that lord's local support. William of Poitiers, to this point, again according to Morris, said that the king's intention, quote-unquote, was to reduce the duchy to a desert. <laughs> it's pretty big words. Then again, William of Poitiers, rah, 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 one of his biggest cheerleaders. It seemed it wasn't just the Duke that the king was fed up with. It was the entire Norman community, though. So what could William do? How could he simultaneously defend his people while also going on the offensive? And here's a moment we can look at as an example of William's military acumen, his inherent ability to adjust to the situation. William decided to take a small group of his closest allies and stay just out of reach of the king's forces coming up from the southeast. When a member of the king's retinue strayed too far, he was dispatched pretty quickly. 
when the king could be seen approaching, William would position his men to look like a much larger force than it really was, thus derailing the king's plans. William became the ultimate boogeyman for King Henry's forces. By corralling the king's forces, William was also keeping the advantage of the countryside's resources. King Henry had a supply chain out of Normandy behind him, sure, but the longer he marched toward Rouen, the Norman ducal capital, the thinner and less secure that supply chain became. But no one was willing to head out to find and gather those resources, not with William's forces somewhere beyond those trees or, or in that fog or on the other side of that hill. William wasn't looking for a fight, but he was puffing up his chest just enough to keep his opponent rethinking his plans. And while William harassed his king across southern Normandy, a much larger Norman force was dispatched northeast to meet Odo's French forces head-on. When they arrived, Odo's forces became a bit lax in their discipline, and according to William of Jumièges, they were torching the town of Mortimer and making a quote-unquote shameful sport of women. Well, the next dawn, while the revelers slept, the Norman forces attacked, taking the Frenchmen by surprise, complete surprise, and routing them. It wasn't exactly easy, but if I were a betting man, the odds were certainly not in the Frenchmen's favor. Normans had a field day capturing the hundreds of fleeing French soldiers in the fray that followed formal military engagement. And I find this part, I don't know, kind of funny, you know, gave me a chuckle. Uh, a Norman fled the scene uh, with strict orders to ride straight to Duke William and deliver the news of the resounding victory over Odo's forces. So, like the 20-something on top of the world he was, William chose to rub it in his opponent's face, of course. <laughs> uh, he, sent a he, he sent a brave young soldier to ride really close to the king's camp that night, climb to the top of the highest tree, and shout the news that Odo's forces had been defeated, and he'd fled the scene in disgrace. Not just once, but the brave young man at the top of the tree shouted it over and over and over. A little bit of psychological warfare there, played by William. King Henry I of France, once again, was humiliated, brought low by this young duke, a vassal of his, no less. But should William have just rolled over to his king? He was, he himself would agree, <laughs> a vassal to King Henry I. But what makes this system of vassalage so unique is that if a duke or count becomes powerful enough, it's almost as if they choose to the terms of their vassalage, you know? Here, William chose to fight because his duchy, his honor, and his very survival, really, was at stake. William set the terms of his relationship with his king by stating in no uncertain terms that he will not be bullied by anyone, not even his king. Henry, that very night, pulled his forces out of Normandy in a hurry, and in a matter of weeks, both William and Henry were back on good terms again. Kind of like high school, I guess. But the lessons of the king's 1053-1054 invasion established Duke William as a preeminent force in Northern Europe. It was almost a writing-on-the-wall thing at this point, but this kind of established it. But one thing was established, too, in William and Henry's new arrangement. Now, check this out. Again, this is William dictating the terms to his king, in a way. 
William was without question the Godwin of France in 1054. King Henry, here's the arrangement, King Henry made this clear when he granted all lands taken from Normandy back to William. Okay, let's keep listening here. As well as any lands he'd seized from Geoffrey Martel already. Oh, well, that, you know, that seems fair. Okay, so I get all my lands back that was stolen from me and anything that I had gained over the last few years against Jeffrey Martel, I get to keep those two. Okay, cool. But wait, there's more. <laughs> and any lands he will take from him in the future too. Basically, William got the king to say, uh, hey, Jeff, just um, stay, out of king, uh, stay out of William's way, okay? <laughs> but when you really break the invasion down here, you'll notice that in a much larger historical context, not only had William defeated the old established Capetian dynasty of French royalty, of which King Henry I was its leading member at the time, but he also defeated the established Angevin dynasty of French noblemen, of which Geoffrey Martel was its leading member at the time. Other duchies and counties were certainly serious players in French politics at the time. Count Eustache, or, sorry, Eustace of Boulogne, Count Baldwin V of Flanders, Duke William VII of Aquitaine. Yeah, but Geoffrey Martel seemed to be top dog. That is, again, until 1054 and William's big win here. To keep our 30,000-foot view of William's reign so far, he at last defeated the worst of the internal dissent in his duchy. On the battlefield, that is, at Valles Dunes in 1047, he went on to establish a reputation of brutality in his business with the county of Maine and the defectors there. William then repelled two major invasions led by the two most powerful people in the kingdom in 53-54, all while defying the Pope's decree that his marriage to a powerful noble family was null and void. Take a moment to just let this next sentence sink in. We haven't even come close to what this guy's known for yet. But Without all of this, he would probably be no more memorable than, say, Jeffrey Martel. Heck, maybe they'd just share a footnote in the French history with the same nickname as the other. Jeffrey Martel, William Martel. William the Hammer versus William the Conqueror. Nah. It was now, in the wake of this repelled invasion, that Normandy was able to breathe for a moment and do some cultural repairs. First was to reinforce his friendships he made after the Battle of Mortimer, which he was not at, which he was not at, but his loose allies fought bravely and loyally. Lord Walter Giffard of Longueville, Lord Roger of Mortimer, Lord William of Warren, and Count Robert of Eu. Now, these were lower lords, except for Count Robert of Eu, of course. But these names were the first time these men were directly tied to Duke William in any formal friendship way, which is significant, actually, because Walter Giffard, Roger of Mortimer, William of Warren, and Robert of Eu would all become a part of William's tiny core contingent of most trusted over the next decade heading into the conquest of England. So friendship solidified and valor awarded. William went on a little spending spree then across his duchy in terms of building up his fortifications as well as his holy sites, a little secular defense mixed with a little divine defense. 
a medieval recipe for success if there ever was one. And speaking of the divine, William had another little issue to deal with in the form of his archbishop in Rouen. If you remember, way back, right, in 1037, William lost his uncle, Archbishop Robert of Rouen, as his main protector and champion, sparking the decade-long anarchy between 1037 and 47. So, Marget, William's 18-year-old uncle, was tapped to replace Robert as Archbishop of Rouen, but Marget wasn't a huge fan of William's succession right away. In fact, he outright opposed his new nephew's, or excuse me, his nephew's marriage to Matilda of Flanders, too. But Duke William would have his retribution during this lull in 1054 to 1055. See, one of the instigators of the town of Arc, the defection there from Normandy in 1053, was Mauget's brother, Count William of Talou, who Duke William roundly defeated there and then exiled, though he made sure he took a few hands and feet of his men before he sent the, the other Count uh, William packing. Being an archbishop, it wasn't so easy in implicating Mauget and his brother's disloyalty, but after William uncovered some dirt on Mauget and gained a few seconds to pursue Mauget's departure from Rouen, the duke pounced. Turns out that Mauget had a wife whom he'd never actually married, but who nevertheless bore him several children. Now, this wasn't uncommon among Catholic clergy in the Middle Ages, but it's also worth mentioning that Mauget took the role as Archbishop of Rouen not because of his piety or outstanding work as a monk, no. Mauget wasn't even a clergyman when he took the role. He was a secular man who happened to be born of the late Duke. So the marriage wasn't a big deal. But what was a big deal is the fact that he enjoyed hawking, something very much frowned upon by the church. This is something Edward the Confessor, or right now King Edward, uh, in England, is going to receive a little flack for. And Mauget studied, <laughs> not, not a good look here, Mauget, he studied occult materials. So William was able to make quick work of deposing Mauget, who was then exiled to the island of Guernsey, where he would drown in 1055. So that is the end of Mauget. With Mauget gone, William could replace him with a friendlier archbishop in Rouen. This would come in the form of a former hermit who was pretty enthusiastic about church reform. His name was Morelius, and he would serve until 1067, and in addition to the rising star of a monk named Lanfranc in Normandy at the time, Mauritius would convince the future Saint Anselm to pursue deeper ties in the church. Meanwhile, William's longtime BFFs, according to Morris, that is, William Fitzosborne, Roger of Montgomery, and his stepdad, Herluin de Comteville, all expanded their land holdings and defenses after Mortimer, which leads us to think that the rest of Norman nobility were also doing this. Abbeys at Faycomp and Beck rose in prominence during this time, mainly due to the prestige they gained from the certain monks like Lanfranc er, and Anselm joining their groups. But those two men will have their day on this podcast soon enough. And, and more than all of that, though, more than all of that, Normandy was given at least a year or two to replant their fields and harvest a couple seasons worth of much-needed crops for everyone. Remember, they had just been blasted. I mean, their, their fields were stripped clean over the last couple of years 
with, with siege armies and invasions and all the rest. And localities were able to invest loads of resources, giving the layman more opportunities to make money. Resources put toward what would become a tiny architectural renaissance within the duchy in the mid-11th century. And it was during this time as well that Duke William, having shaken off the, uh, of Pope Leo IX's dismissal of his marriage, and it didn't help that by 1054 Pope Leo had died, <laughs> well, Duke William established himself as quite the friend of the church. Normandy was notorious. Let me repeat this <laughs> very clearly. Notorious throughout Europe as a place where Christianity went to sour and rot, you could say. Now, Normans were, of course, very pious servants to the faith, without question. But in terms of their clergy and the rules, well, it didn't seem to apply to them, apparently. The practice of simony, or simony, the buying and selling of clerical offices and bishoprics, that is, ran rampant throughout Normandy over the last 50 years or so, as well as the practice of clergymen having brides and even mistresses on the side. But as early as 1050, Duke William began a process to change this. But after the near-constant warfare, you know, with, with Jeffrey Martel and King Henry I and those other smaller power grabs inside and outside of his duchy, through the year 1054, well, William was once again free. And with the death again of Pope Leo IX and the insertion of Pope Victor II, a German requested by Roman cardinals and nominated by his kinsman, Holy Roman Emperor Henry III, bit of nepotism, who began his, uh, excuse me, Pope Victor, who began his papacy on April 13th of 1055. Now, Lanfranc had much to do with William's reputation in Rome after his marriage to Matilda. It was Lanfranc, see, he had spoken to Pope Leo IX and softened the Pope's outlook, especially in light of William's brethren wreaking havoc in southern Italy at the time. And it would be Lanfranc again who would speak to Pope Victor II when he took office to look on Normandy's exceptional, pro exceptional progress in not only rebuilding and renovating old churches and monasteries around the duchy, but building bigger and grander structures as well. By this time, the abbeys of Fécamp and Jumièges were major centers of learning. However, even they paled in comparison to the abbey at Beck. Beck was considered in the mid-1050s in Normandy as the preeminent place of learning throughout all of Latin Christendom. Saying something. Now with his duchy secured, his relations with the king repaired, an agreement put in place with the king that any lands he would gain in the future from the county of Anjou would be his without question. William, well... William got a little antsy as he sat in on mass and ecumenical councils that he called periodically. So William, just six weeks into his peace with the king, he drew up plans and made his moves on his old foe, Geoffrey Martel. Quietly at first, William ordered men to be stationed at the fortress at Domfront, a castle he'd picked up when he won the siege at Alençon a couple years earlier. Then he sent orders to quietly have these men begin constructing a new fortification near the town of Ombrière. Now, remember, the castle building was a, it wasn't distinctly Norman, but I'll tell you, they, they excelled. For lack of a better word, the Normans excelled, or excuse me, the, the Frenchmen in general excelled, but the Normans really excelled in construction 
as well as doing it quick. They were very fast. See, the problem here, though, is that Ombriere was in the county of Maine, and except for the lands surrounding Alençon on the Maine border with Normandy, the rest of the county belonged to Geoffrey Martel. Essentially, William was waving his right hand, which held very loud public projects, while in his left hand, way over here, away from the hubbub of activity happening in his right, he was making moves against Count Geoffrey of Anjou. This shows us that William was, in his mid-twenties, able to work on highly complex, multi-tiered, multi-faceted strategies, which would be a hallmark of his ultimate takeover of England later. Oops, yeah, there's that spoiler alert again. <laughs> By the time Count Geoffrey knew about the castle south of Ombriere, it was way too late. Now, Geoffrey raised a massive army, and he laid siege to this new Norman castle in Maine. He had to back away, though. William was three steps ahead of his enemies, having reinforced his garrison there to the point that the moment Geoffrey Martel arrived at Ombriere, he learned that the Lord of Ombriere had already threw his hands up and swore loyalty to William. And at that point, what was the use? This tenuous peace held for a year and a half or so, until a charter appeared showing both Geoffrey Martel and King Henry I together once again on peaceful terms. <laughs> Now, this coincides with William hearing whispers of sedition within his duchy again. His distant kinsman, the Count of Mortain, had apparently sent word to one of his knights within Normandy that he wasn't to leave the duchy because something was about to lay the duchy open to looting. William quickly acted on that, exiled the Count, and gave the County of Mortain to his own brother, Robert. Now, Mortain wasn't all that special in the grand scheme of things here, but it was just over a day's walk from Domfront, which, now in the hands of his more trustworthy brother, Duke William had a stronger hold of the area in his fight against Geoffrey Martel. In 1057, however, William was told of a relatively secret plan of another invasion of the Duchy. It's, it's not too surprising that Count Geoffrey was at it again. Even the accounts written by William of Jumiege in 1060 refer to Geoffrey Martel as, quote, a treacherous man in every respect, frequently inflicted assaults and intolerable pressures on his neighbors, end quote. And it's worth noting that even though this episode focuses on Duke William's challenges during the 1050s, Geoffrey Martel was kind of a jerk to the most people around him. He was also known to have made moves against Duke William VII of Aquitaine to his south, and Count Theobald I of Blois to his east, before he ever decided to look at the young juggernaut to his north. But again, in 1057, as William of Jumiege writes, King Henry I was quote-unquote burning to avenge the insult inflicted on him by the Duke, summoned Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, to prepare a large army for another expedition into Normandy. William was instantly put on his heels, though, a position he wasn't exactly being, uh, wasn't exactly used to being in in recent years, but he steadied his course and he took stock of his situation. He backed up as far as the River Deves, hope I pronounced that right, the, as far as the River Deves estuary, where it emptied into the English Channel, which is further evidence that the vast majority of medieval leaders did just about everything in their power to avoid the battle altogether. In hindsight, we know that the first two targets of King Henry's were the Norman cultural and economic centers 
at Bayou and Cain, but it would be at a place called Varaville that William would find the corner his enemies should have been wary of backing him up into. So William refused to back up. He rounded his forces to trail the king's army, acting as helpless onlookers to an impending massacre and defeat. At the estuary, mentioned already, the king and his count failed to understand Norman geography, apparently, because they wouldn't have done what they did when they did it. Had they known that the River Deves was a tidal estuary, meaning, similar to the Battle of Maldon, only more so, the tides affected how high or low the waterline was throughout the day. When the French Angevin forces approached the river, they began fording the river, working their way toward Cain, and then on to Bayou. However, halfway through the movement, the water had risen too high for men to start their crossing, leaving the army split down the middle. And it makes sense that the rest of them would choose not to cross at that time. These was a tidal estuary, water is rising, and it rose to the point that uh, you're wearing full metal, some of you. Just not a good idea to jump in water with full metal on. So William, seeing this, he, he wasted no time at all, for lack of better words. It, it was now or never to him. His enemies had once again sought the death of him and his duchy, and they would once again be roundly defeated and humiliated. William charged the field, his men surprised but trailing close behind him. With the vanguard and other contingents safely on the other bank and separated from those behind, William massacred the remaining soldiers on his side of the river to the astonishment and horror of those, the safe ones, watching on. William once again surprised his enemies with unexpected maneuvers that eventually won the day. In this short battle at Varaville, would serve as the last serious threat to William's hold on the duchy or against his king. King Henry I would never again, after the Battle of Varaville in 1057, never again try to work or scheme against his duke in Normandy. And as for Geoffrey Martel, the hammer had pretty much swung his last serious blow. As for France, though not in name, Duke William was king. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, tracing William's maturation as a highly skilled military leader, politician, and religious reformer. Please keep sharing the show in your favorite social media outlet, and please don't forget to contact the show with questions, comments, corrections, and topic suggestions. Also, head over to our new website for the latest updates and blog posts. Next week, we stay away from England for just one more episode, and we head north to another major player in North Sea politics leading up to the Norman conquest of England. You know you can tell a lot about a person by how they choose to spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared history here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time. Thank you.